0: Better Off Ball, A Life in 147 Days, a serialized non-fiction podcast that chronicles the story of 15-year-old Adrian Wilson's 147-day battle with primary liver cancer. As she lay dying, Adrian taught others, including her older sister Andrea, who raised her, how to live. Welcome back to Better Off Ball The Life 147 Days. I am your host and storyteller, Andrea Wilson Woods. Whether you're watching the video or listening to the podcast, I really appreciate you tuning in. Let's get started. Days 24 through 28, Friday through Tuesday, June 8th through June 12th, 2001. It's comforting to know I am alive, not quite rotting as fast as others expect. Do I send out a message of, hey, I can barely survive a cold, let alone liver cancer? I am sick and tired of comforting you people. Sorry for the all caps. I'm going to hide for a while and comfort myself. I hope that's okay with everyone. Adrian's Journal dated June 8th, 2001. Century 21 Larson Realty, the management company who handles our rent, calls us to let us know the owners have put the house back on the market. The timing could not be worse. The property manager appears sympathetic, but she has to do her job. In order to protect Adrian's health, I explained their guidelines for showing the house. When people enter, they have to spray the bottom of their shoes with a mixture of bleach and water. A blue bottle is located on the counter as you walk into the kitchen, the main entrance to our house. Next, they must wash their hands with the antibacterial hand sanitizer. We must be home when the house is being shown, and children are not allowed inside because they pose a greater risk of infection. People may look in Adrian's bedroom, but they cannot go inside, nor can they touch any doorknobs. The property manager says these restrictions should not be a problem. I hate moving. When Adrian and I lived with our mother in Birmingham, we moved four times in five years. Whenever our house or apartment became too dirty, mother wanted to leave. Some people believe in spring cleaning. Our mother preferred moving in the spring or whenever. She continued her nomadic behavior after I left home. In four years, Adrian lived in four different cities in three different states. She was in her third school by the beginning of third grade. She completed third grade in her fourth school when she moved to Los Angeles to live with me. Then we moved and she started fourth grade in Hollywood. I managed to keep her there for fifth grade too, even though we moved yet again. Before she started middle school, I made a conscious decision to find the best school district in the most affordable neighborhood so we wouldn't have to move again. We have lived in this house in Burbank for almost four years now, longer than I have lived anywhere else in California and longer than Adrian has lived anywhere else in her entire life. We can't move. I consult an attorney to see if we have any rights as tenants given Adrian's medical condition. John and I cannot afford to buy this house. Even if we could, we don't want to live next to Interstate 5 for the rest of our lives. The asking price is $229,000. The price drops after numerous potential buyers realize the house shakes whenever a semi roars by on the freeway. Eventually, our home will become the cheapest three bedroom house in Burbank. The attorney researches the issue for weeks. Can we stay here while Adrian is sick? Do her rights carry more weight than the owners do? No. If the house sells, we will have to move. Our strong dislike for Dr. No motivates us to seek a second opinion. Kirsten refers us to Dr. Aquino, a liver cancer specialist at UCLA. She heard him speak at a conference, and he impressed her. Getting an appointment is easy. Getting the necessary documents together is more challenging, and getting the insurance to pay for it is nearly impossible. I sign papers releasing copies of Adrian's medical files. I pay for a copy of Adrian's CAT scan and bring home the film. Adrian and I hold it up to the light. Hmm, looks like dots of light to me, says Adrian as she shrugs. I am stunned by how many dots there are. It looks like it is snowing in her lungs. UCLA request a tissue sample from the biopsy. More documents to sign, more papers to read, more people to call. I realize this is the first time I have had full access to Adrian's medical records. The report on her biopsy states, 15 year old female, previously healthy, who has recently been diagnosed with hepatocellular carcinoma, which has metastasized to the lungs. There is, by radiographic report, CAT scan, one dominant liver tumor with multiple smaller satellite tumors. The medical jargon is not lost on me. Satellite tumors sound far more threatening than dots of light or snowflakes. I refuse to look at the film or read the biopsy report again. I put everything in a giant envelope and store it next to Adrian's medical supplies. It taunts me, but I resist. Denial sustains me. I cannot let those bulbs of enlightenment destroy my hope. The ringing in her ears is gone, but Adrian still suffers from nausea and headaches. Since her counts are up, she is allowed to go out in public. John takes her to the movies on Friday night. I opt not to go, which means the movie must be in. MTV, teenage, gross humor kind of film. My tastes exclude Tom Green, Ben Stiller, or South Park characters. Adrian continues her ongoing gin rummy game with John. She is winning. Over the weekend, she is too tired to go out. We stay in and watch episodes of Invader Zim and SpongeBob SquarePants, which I mistake for a piece of cheese. Little bit, Adrian's cat scratches her while they are playing. The sight of blood spooks me, even though I know Adrian's platelets are in normal range now. I yell at Little Bit and she immediately jumps off. Adrian says, She didn't mean to, sissy. From that point forward, Little Bit displays extra caution around Adrian as if she knows her actions might incur my wrath. Eli spends a few hours a day at our house if Adrian has enough energy to stay awake. I am talking on the phone when I hear Adrian and Eli laughing out loud. We have a rule in our house. The bedroom door remains open when a boy is in Adrian's room. I cover the mouthpiece and yell, what's going on in there? Eli says, take a look. See, sissy? Adrian says, it's finally coming out. I watch as Eli pulls a tuft of Adrian's hair from one of her mohawks. Both teenagers dissolve into uncontrollable giggles. Their laughter is contagious. When I point out Adrian now has an obvious bald spot, she stops Eli, looks in the mirror, and decides she needs another haircut. I promised to take her to Supercuts later that afternoon. Adrian finds out Dave Navarro, her favorite musician, is going to be on the Tonight Show on June 18th, just weeks after his 34th birthday, 6767. So she and Eli decide to get tickets. Eli calls a friend whose father works on the show. I'm in a bit of a pickle, he says. I call our social worker, Grace, who knows Kevin Eubanks because he volunteers for Children's Hospital. She promises to see what she can do. Adrian and Eli brainstorm other people who might have connections to NBC. We're going to milk this cancer thing for everything it's worth, declares Eli. The words may come out of his mouth, but they sound like something Adrian would say. All together, they come up with eight tickets and passes to the green room before the show. Adrian's second round of chemotherapy is scheduled the weekend before that Tuesday. She is determined to do well so she can be discharged in time to see Dave. Teen Impact meets on Mondays at 6 p.m. Their mission is to improve the quality of life for adolescents and young adults with cancer by providing peer based group interventions in a safe and therapeutic environment. The group has regular meetings and even retreats. Adrian is reluctant to attend. She rarely fits into one specific social group and thinks the situation won't be any different. I encourage her to go one time and she agrees to shut me up. Before we leave for the meeting, I take Adrian to Supercuts to fix her hair. We went there when she had lice last year, super lice, which are resistant to the standard chemicals, invaded her middle school. After spending more than $50 on treatments and two weeks killing the lice, Adrian needed most of her thick hair cut off in order to return to school. I remember how the hairdresser looked at us in disgust. The lice are dead, I assured her, but my sister needs some length taken off. Everyone at her school has lice right now. We are not dirty people, I said. The hairdresser finally agreed to cut Adrian's hair to her shoulders, four inches total. I don't see the other hairdresser, which is a relief because I can't imagine how she would react to this situation. The woman at the cash register sends us over to Mary. I explained to her under no circumstances can the razor touch Adrian's scalp. She wants her Mohawks shaved off, but she has specific ideas on how her hair should look. Using her middle part as a guide, Adrian tells Mary to shave off all her hair, but she wants one side to be a quarter inch longer than the other. I asked Mary if she can do that without touching Adrian's scalp. She says, yes, ma'am. Mary does a beautiful job and receives a much higher tip than the one I gave the other hairdresser the year before. Like the quad hog, Adrian's new hairdo serves as a costume. Except for the quarter-sized bald spot in the front, her hair follicles remain intact. Her hairstyle has purpose. It disguises the fact she is sick. She has lost weight and her skin becomes paler each week. But strangers don't know these things. People stare sometimes, but I think they stare not because she appears sick, but because she looks different. Adrian possesses a natural beauty that no plastic surgery in the world can achieve. Adrian complains about having a headache as we pull into the parking garage of the hospital. She knows I cannot give her any more Tylenol for a few hours, but she wants to avoid going to the meeting. We'll walk in. If you hate it, we'll walk out, I tell her. You can show off your new hairdo. She frowns. We find teen impact in a large room where chairs are positioned in a circle. Many teenagers have already arrived. We sit in the two chairs closest to the door. A woman opens the meeting by encouraging people to go around and introduce themselves. We have some new people here today. She says, Adrian glares at me. Most of the kids have leukemia and some of them are in remission. An upbeat 16 year old Hispanic girl has a tumor in her thigh and her leg may need to be amputated. She sits in a wheelchair to Adrian's right. When it is her turn, Adrian whispers, hello, My name is Adrian. Some kids respond with an enthusiastic, hi, Adrian. The group reminds me of the few Al-Anon meetings I attended many years ago. Positive people coping with impossible situations. Do I leave my alcoholic boyfriend? Do I continue treatment even though the tumors keep multiplying? I smile and look at Adrian, who runs out of the room in tears. I apologize for both of us and leave too. Farther down the hall, I find her sitting on the floor knees tucked into her chest, shaking and crying. Don't make me go back. I can't do this, she says. I pushed too hard. She does not need or want a support group. I do. I forced my desire onto her. Most parents do at one time or another, but unlike our argument over what constitutes a perfect Christmas tree, this time my will incited sadness, not anger. Between sobs, Adrian says, don't you get it? I can't be around other sick kids. It's too depressing. I'm sorry, kiddo. You never have to go back. Let's go home. As I help Adrian to her feet, a tall African-American woman approaches me. Here, she says, as she thrust a book in my hand. I just know I'm supposed to give this to you. I can't explain why. I thank her and look down at the small book cancer bibliography the best books on cancer a resource for librarians oncology nurses patients and their families four by seven inches with 58 pages it would be more accurate to call it a booklet i flip through it as adrian and i get on the elevator the booklet was printed five months ago to assuage my guilt i tell myself we were supposed to be here tonight not to attend the teen impact meeting but to receive this booklet Later that evening John empathizes with Adrian about the disastrous meeting. He sits next to her while she lies in bed. Every night Adrian requests John do hand duty. He holds her hand as they watch TV in her bedroom and sometimes she will fall asleep. Tonight she vents her frustration about being forced to do something she did not want to do. I leave them alone. Hand duty is their time together and Adrian is too upset with me right now. Instead I read the booklet and highlight 12 books to buy out of the 109 listed. I feel terrible about what happened, but I can't fix it. I can make up for my mistake by buying books, becoming more educated, and discovering a miracle. Hooray for Hollywood, where everyone is crazy and no one's good in Hollywood. Adrian and I sang our version of that song and performed our box step dance whenever we entered our Highland Terrace apartment. The song and dance was an effort to put on a happy face for her, but I was not doing well. For the first time in my life, I could not hold down a job due to health problems. I slept two hours a night, constantly felt hot, and could not get enough food. I feared I was going crazy. I didn't have health insurance, so I couldn't see a doctor. Adrian, then nine years old, needed me, which kept me going, taking her to school, picking her up, making her dinner, tucking her in, Reading to her and picking up her toys were routines that provided structure. I joined the school site council, which gave me another reason to drag my body out of the house. I didn't take it one day at a time. I took it hours at a time. I scraped together $1.50 every day for Adrian's lunch because she had not qualified for the free lunch program yet. Every night, dinner consisted of spaghetti and canned green beans, which Adrian grew to hate. Friends gave me money here and there for food or gas. Anya's ex-boyfriend once bought us groceries. I stopped paying the rent, so I avoided the manager who lived on site. Soon the phone and electricity were turned off. My father turned me down when I asked for money, so Anya paid our light bill, but we didn't have a phone for months. When I spotted four $20 bills hanging out of an ATM machine, I hesitated for a second and then took the money to buy food and Adrian's Christmas present. Knowing $25 was the limit, Adrian picked out a sparkling disco ball that hangs from her ceiling. Unlike the dead roses, it survived the intense cleaning. Not long after Christmas, I was diagnosed with Graves disease after Anya insisted I go to county hospital because I appeared to have a stomach flu. With a pulse of 150 beats per minute lying down, I was immediately admitted and remained there for five days. I met this male nurse, whose shoulder I cried on my last night there. I'm being evicted. I have no lights, no phone, no job. My sister is counting on me, I told him. I've hit rock bottom. I will never forget what he said. No, you haven't. When you hit rock bottom, things start looking up. You're not quite there yet. At the time, I wanted to hit him, but he was right. My friends urged me to apply for welfare. Surely you'll qualify, they said. You're sick, unable to work. An Armenian caseworker took one look at my skin color, my college education, and my sister, who was not my biological child, before she turned me down. She said not to count on it. Is this rock bottom? I can't even get food stamps. Less than two months later, I was broadsided by a tan sedan. The driver, probably uninsured, left the scene. My old Ford Escort, aptly named Trouble, lost her passenger window and most of her door, too. I didn't have a scratch on me, and Adrian was not in the car. A piece of cardboard replaced the window, which Adrian loved to jump through, even though the car door still opened. That cardboard represented the white trash side of my mother's family I had been running away from my whole life. I couldn't find a place for us to live because I had no money, no credit, and every apartment manager ran a credit check. I contemplated moving us into a flea bag motel on Sunset Boulevard, the kind where you pay a daily rate. I couldn't imagine leaving Adrian there alone, something I had to do because I got a new job working as a waitress four nights per week. One night at my crappy job, a customer handed me a business card after hearing about my situation. Call Sam, he said. Tell him I sent you. I lied on the application about never being evicted. Sam didn't run a credit check, and we moved into a studio apartment on Lyman Place in mid-April. As I surveyed the two rooms that would become our home for the next 16 months, I thought, things are looking up. Nadia's mother drops off a one-inch pile of papers, research she did about HCC as well as alternative medicine. As I skim the documents, I think about the concept of rock bottom. I look at Adrian watching Scooby Doo, laughing her ass off. Her liver hurts again. It feels tight, she says. She almost threw up earlier tonight and she has a fever, 99.2 degrees. I think about how little we have seen Adam. His mother uses Adrian's illness as an excuse not to send him, as if cancer is contagious. Three years ago, a 12 year old Adrian and six year old Adam performed for John and me in this same living room. They rocked out to Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody, first with solemn faces and then with air guitars. People assume they are brother and sister, even though they look nothing alike. I miss him and wonder how much he understands about what is going on. I have no job, yet I have never worked harder in my life. Tears are always near the surface, but an inner core of strength sucks them back down. Things are not looking up. I cannot face what rock bottom will be this time. I lose myself in research, searching for a clinical trial or herbal medicine that will eradicate the tumors. But somewhere deep inside, a part of me knows the truth. We're not even close to rock bottom yet. Thank you for watching and listening to Better Off Bald, A Life in 147 Days. Please subscribe to my channel and stay tuned for the next episode. You just heard a chapter from Better Off Ball, A Life in 147 Days, a story told and written by Andrea Wilson Woods. If you enjoyed this episode, subscribe to our podcast, share it with your friends, and leave us a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening.